Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 25th, 2019, and before introducing today's guest, I want to encourage listeners to go to econtalk.org econtalk.org. And in the upper left-hand corner, you'll find the link to our annual survey where you can vote for your favorite episodes of the year. Tell us about yourself and your listening experience. And now for today's guest. My guest is author and professor Janine Barkas, the Luann and Larry Temple Centennial Professor in English Literature at the University of Texas at Austin. Her latest book and the subject of today's conversation is The Lost Books of Jane Austen. Janine, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. This is our first episode on Jane Austen. Pretty confident uh, of the 700 plus that we've done. Yeah, I know it's hard to believe. Uh, And some listeners may be thinking, why are we talking about Jane Austen? I hope to reward your patience, listeners. And uh, we have a really interesting episode today around uh, Jane Austen herself, the phenomenon of Jane Austen, and a really, really beautiful book that you've written, Janine, uh, the Lost Books of Jane Austen. It's it's beautiful physically. It's an aesthetically pleasing book that is not uh, a great Kindle book. It would be okay to read it in the Kindle, but it's really beautiful to hold in your hands. It's a lovely book. And it is a incredible detective story, a, a mystery that, that you've uh, uncovered and explored in that book. So, but let's get started by talking about uh, Jane Austen herself. People probably heard of her. Tell us something about her. Um, okay. Um, we could be here a long time if I tell you um, all my favorite things. Um, Jane Austen, um, on the one hand, uh, you know, was uh, simply born in 1775 and dies in 1817, writes six novels, lives a relatively quiet life, dies at the age of 41. Um, and on the other hand, she is a phenomenon. And roughly around 200 years after her death, which is where we are now. Um, The novels that she published, starting in 1811 with Sense and Sensibility, uh, and then Pride and Prejudice followed in 1813, um, those novels had their 200th anniversaries this this last decade. And those anniversaries have shown, uh, with the help of Hollywood, which kind of started uh, in the 1990s with various movies, she's become the darling of Hollywood. She has become um, the classes uh, that I teach that fill the most quickly. Um, I now teach Jane Austen at 8 a.m. in the mornings in order not to cannibalize Milton or Shakespeare. Um, and she, yeah, she's a phenomenon. She's she's entered pop culture in a way that, uh, you know, Shakespeare did 200 years into his afterlife. And so the Jane Austen Society of North America has 6,000 
thousand members uh, that come together once a year. Uh, there are t-shirts. There uh, is I Heart Mr. Darcy underwear. There are celebrity <laughs> ducks that, I mean, I can't believe that in 700 episodes, this is our first time talking about the industry it, that is Jane. It's a terrible oversight, but we're going to try to Obviously, do we're our, correcting that Yeah, we're doing, we're doing our best here today. I, 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 I'm just shocked. I, I didn't realize that she was a published author for six years yeah. only. Um, mm-hmm. That's uh, extraordinary. And she died. Do we know what she died of at 41? Um, we don't. There's lots of speculation. Imagine lots of academics hovered around her grave speculating about how she died. Um, uh, so the speculation is sort of an unsavory business. But, yeah, she um, she died of a liver ailment, and um, she died too young at 41, and yet she left an extraordinary legacy let's in na- those six novels. Yeah, let's name the six, just for, for listeners who aren't familiar with okay, them. Okay, so um, uh, we've got uh, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, uh, Emma, Mansfield Park, Northanger Abbey, and Persuasion, as the, the novels that uh, have all been turned into films. And then she left us with um, a few bits uh, of manuscripts, um, uh, Love and Friendship, uh, a, an early sort of work that was just turned into a movie by Whit Stillman, um, uh, and Lady Susan, which uh, he folded into that under that title, and The Watsons and Sanditon, which has just been made. So even the smaller bits uh, that for which we only have fragments are being turned into films and television adaptations. That's how desperate people are for a bit of Jane Austen. And I'd say, correct me if I'm wrong, alongside Shakespeare... Uh, mm-hmm. She is perhaps the the most well known novelist in English. Uh, you, I guess you'd have Dickens for some competition, maybe. Um, maybe but right now, but it's Jane Austen. I'd say at the moment, she's the definitely the front runner and the poster child for you know the sort of the humanities and um, yeah, she she is along with Will Shakespeare, kind of the the leading figure in literature and and. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be working uh, on her, to be honest, and to kind of see this, the, the author you're working on and see her star rise this way. So let's speculate a little bit. Uh, we could talk about this the whole time. I don't want to. But, you know, why Jane? Why not uh, George Eliot, uh, uh, who was who wrote Middlemarch, uh, a yes, woman also George writing, writing under great. a pseudonym, writing under a pseudonym. Um, mm-hmm. Who else would be in the competition? We have Dickens, we have Trollope for for great British novelists. Let's start there, uh, pre-20th century. Who's her competition? Really nobody but in her, in her direct era that's still surviving um, reputationally. Yeah, it, I mean, this is the great question, of course, that of like, why do certain authors have T-shirts and, and celebrity mugs and bobbleheads and why do others not have that? Um uh, Sir Walter Scott, who was her direct contemporary, yeah. a great novelist in his own right, was deemed the sort of Shakespeare of the novel. And then a big monument was built in Edinburgh and he was celebrated and then his star simply dropped. And for reasons of, I don't know, length, interest, um, uh, he is no longer the front runner, uh, even though in Jane Austen's time, he it, it looked like things would 
pan out very differently. And so I don't I don't think in terms of her celebrity that those of us who teach Jane Austen or or read Jane Austen uh, can be too complacent about her particular place in the canon at the moment um, because those things do shift. But Shakespeare, after 200 years, was here to stay, and so Austen seems at her 200-year mark to be very much a permanent fixture in the canon, and for good reason. Uh, They're absolutely great books, but there's something else besides. Uh, You're quite right that other people write great books, and yet, um, is it for reasons of length? Is it for reasons um, of uh, that they bloom too early? Um, Is it that Austin was a bit of a sleeper during her own lifetime that makes us want to champion her more now as if we are the ones to discover her. I think that the magic of, of celebrity is, um, is you know, kind of mercurial and um, mysterious. I just want to say one thing about Sir Walter Scott. When I was a boy, mm-hmm. uh, my father, who was born in 1930, uh, just presumed that Ivanhoe would be one of my favorite books. Um, I wanted to love it. I think I'm pretty sure I've read it, and I may have even read another Sir Walter Scott, I'm thinking, and I did love – I just have to get this on the record because I, I had a um, – growing up, I had a, a record, an LP of poetry, and it was either <laughs> um, – I think it was Alexander Scorby reading uh, Lochinvar. Oh, young Lochinvar has come out of the West. Of all the wide borders, his steed was the best. Of all the wide something, his steed with this. It's one of my favorite poems. I still love that poem. I read, I've read it to my children. Um, it's No Ballad of East and West by Kipling but for them. But mm-hmm. uh, it's still, I think they might know it a little bit. And he's gone. He is so gone. And one argument, reputationally, and one argument would be, and, and I'm going to bring us back to Jane, one argument would be that, well, Really, Ivanhoe is so dated. It's all about jousting and knights, and and that's you know kids want to read about Star Wars, and and they want more livelier writing, and he's very archaic, and and yet the other puzzle about Jane Austen is that the world that she inhabited, or her characters inhabited, is so alien to us and so old fashioned yeah. in a negative way. And I'm I've not read all of her books. I've probably read three or four. Of those, they often center around a young woman in poor financial situation, desperately needing to marry uh, to preserve her station, her her lifestyle. This is not just um, out of date for most modern readers; it's offensive. How do you, how do you how do your students and how do you react to that? Um, I ask my students this question usually on the first day, sort of like, why are you here? Why is this class full? Why does it have a waiting list? These are books that, and most of those students um, tend to be women um, because Jane Austen, we can talk about that later, has become kind of gendered in the way that she's marketed. So um, 90% of my students in a big Jane Austen class, unless it's an undergraduate required class in which they're sort of funneled in, um, and then the distribution is half-half, it's often women. And I asked them point blank what you just said, which is, you know, sort of why in the world are you here? These are books about a world in which women cannot inherit money, uh, land especially. They cannot hold a job. Um, They sit around waiting for Mr. Darcy. What in the world are you doing in this classroom? Why 
why these books? And hearing them defend Austin or their interest in her um, is very revealing. Um, it isn't necessarily the the literary treasure that I hope to offer them. Um, it's usually that they say they long for a quiet world in which there are not six different technologies by which they can be rejected or what does, you know, he liked uh, my Facebook post or my Instagram and uh, what does it all mean? But a world in which, as one student put it, he said, when I meet someone here in America, do I shake their hand? Do I hug them? Do I kiss them on the left cheek or the right cheek or both cheeks? He said, all of these things are possible. And reading about a world in which there are strict rules um, and where every glance, every touch of the hand during a dance is meaningful is a world in which for the, for a moment, at least I would like to visit. And yeah, that was, well, I don't know how beautiful it is, but it, it was, uh, it is a recurring, um, different students express it differently, but that is their recurring sentiment. Do you, I hate to ask you this. Do you have a favorite? Oh, depends on what day of the week it is. You know, if it's Wednesday, it might be Emma. If it's, you know, if it's uh, uh, another day, it might be Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice is everyone's favorite. And so I usually never pick it. And uh, Emma, I find to be, uh, in my rereading of it, always the most surprising. And so that probably is, yeah, that and Northanger Abbey are are my favorites. And is there a a, uh, movie or miniseries version uh, of one of the books that is your favorite? Um, I would have to say, hands down, Clueless. Uh, I was going to mention Clueless. Yeah, talk about I, Clueless for just a minute. It's not... <laughs> <laughs> we, we can't linger on yeah. uh, its cultural significance. No. Uh, but it is a movie that just translated the world of, of hyper, Jane Austen's hybrid and the kind of... Um, very uh, claustrophobic village life world in the novel Emma into uh, high school cliques and high school valley speak. And it was enormously successful. And one of the things that always uh, surprises me, because the movie is now 20 years old, um, it is that it... Um, it never advertised that from the beginning that it was an adaptation of Emma. Yeah. So that um, it, unlike um, 10 Things I Hate About You, which appeared at roughly the same time in the mid-90s, uh, a movie that you know signaled that it was based upon Shakespeare and it was redoing that in a high school setting. This is a high school version of Jane Austen that never um, uh, recognizes its debt to Austin um, in its own marketing. And so everyone who watched it, many of my students say, oh, it's my favorite movie because it's still a cult movie. Um, and they watched it clueless, as it were, that um, it was based on Emma. And yet all the characters' names, all the situations are map on so beautifully that part of the fun is to see how the original, if you know it well, is translated into this movie about an L.A. high school and the, the things that uh, – the matchups and mishaps that happen there. So I'm just going to put a vote in for Sense and Sensibility, um, which won Best Picture whenever it came out with yeah, Emma, Emma Thompson, Thompson and Hugh Grant. And the um, and Alan Rickman. Yes. Yeah. The um, that whole movie, it's a it's a it's a lovely movie, but it's it's worth sitting through just for the last five minutes. We're not going to talk about them. But for me, I found that 
it's a, it's a moment of of um, movie magic that uh, is just it's just so well done, so well done. It it is wonderfully well done, and the the yeah, every part of it I think is terrific, rather than just uh, the last five minutes. <laughs> so let's talk about your book, um, the Lost Books of Jane Austen, which is part of the story of how Jane Austen came to be Jane Austen. Which um, tell us what you did and what you, what your enterprise was in that in that in that project. It's really quite a, quite unusual, quite beautiful. Thank you. Um, I I have to admit I didn't set out to write you know a book about books. Uh, certainly not a book about sort of shabby, cheap, schlocky uh, editions of Jane Austen. Um, it came about as a kind of a local curiosity where I found one copy from the Victorian era that had been published by Lever Soap Company, um, and. I thought, how odd, and began sort of scratching away at the history of this edition that was really kind of a white-labeled imprint uh, that had been used in the end as a giveaway in the 1890s uh, for soap wrappers to uh, readers uh, of a, a very working-class status. Um, and it had been part of a long list of books uh, and this was Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility were both kind of soap editions. And once I started looking into the history of this edition, um, I realized over time that not only had this particular edition not been recorded, and why would it? It was a giveaway. Um, it wasn't a significant edition. It didn't end up in a major bibliography. It didn't end up in any library. But at the same time, I began to discover other editions um, also from the 19th, especially the 19th century, that had never been recorded, that were all cheap editions, and that were at the bottom end of the book market. And because they were at the bottom end and printed on bad paper and probably included some misprints, and um, they didn't count. And I began to sort of collect them and count them and uh, found a number of uh, collectors uh, who were interested in 19th century publishing and 19th century publishers bindings or who had been interested in Austin for many, many decades and had acquired along the way various quirky editions. Um, and putting all of those collections together and doing a lot of sort of um, unconventional eBay hunting for, for various kind of flotsam and floatsam of, of, of book uh, uh, editions or bookish editions of Jane Austen that had been neglected, I discovered a kind of whole inventory of works that hadn't been accounted for. And these works were all cheap and it was their cheapness that seemed to have been offensive to those who were uh, collecting and recording and studying Jane Austen. And some of them, many of them, I think, were uh, were railroad editions. Uh, yeah. Talk about that whole industry and how that came about. So one of um, – so Jane Austen was, as I said, a sort of a bit of a sleeper during her lifetime. Um, and then in 1833, so about 15 years um, after her death, uh, a man named Richard Bentley, an enterprising publisher, decided to reprint a bunch of novels. Uh, he approached the Austen family, got the right to reprint uh, her uh, six novels. And so in 1833, he is known – or he's kind of um, – treated as the 
Prince Charming, if you will, of the Sleeping Beauty story that is Jane Austen's slumbering reputation that gets reawakened in 1833 in these editions that are um, that cost six shillings, which was a huge drop in price compared to a first edition. But the Bentley's activities created these railroad editions, these other publishers that began printing at a much lower price point, one shilling, two shillings, um, and selling them these books at uh, railway stations, depots, um, book stalls, in, in, in venues that were not as elevated as where Bentley was selling his wares and create an entirely new market because you've got I don't know if it's a perfect storm or you've got sort of these perfect elements uh, that all influence book prices and make them drop in the middle of the 19th century. Pulp paper, stereotype printing, the steam press, and of course the steam engine of trains and the new uh, distribution networks that trains make possible for books. Everything lowers price along with um, uh, cloth uh, covers, which... uh, become uh, standard uh, in the 1830s as well. So here we have people all of a sudden having access to transportation. Yeah. Uh, the Wi-Fi on those trains wasn't so good. No, really wasn't. So they looked for something to do. And what they did is they stood around in the train station was there was a bookseller mm-hmm. for this long journey who offered them a book that was often, I think you said, um, tuppence or threepence, a word I'd never heard before. I didn't know there was a threepence. Yeah, three pennies is a threepence. And uh, I don't know what that uh, amount would translate to in terms of an hourly wage of a worker at the day, but it's a small amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, so that if you're comparing this you know, this elite guy named Bentley and his six-shilling editions that are kind of um, uh, – high middle class and, and genteel um, at six shillings, if you're dealing with an unskilled worker who's earning 10 or 12 shillings a week, um, that, 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 that's not affordable. Um, and so this, this new category of books at railroads did give people kind of an ability to binge watch, an ability to buy, mm-hmm. um, you know, binge read uh, the kinds of books that had been part published um, at the lower price point in serials and, and magazines, but binge reading was for toffs, for the elite, for people who could buy a whole book. And suddenly working people could buy an entire book for a shilling or half a shilling. And, and then in the 1890s, it dropped even to three pennies and two pennies and one penny. And suddenly you have... Austin being binge read by everyone and that phenomenon of her being read by coal miners and school children and uh, ordinary working people is not something we usually have accounted for in our reception histories of Austin simply because we've been looking at the wrong books. Was she serialized originally? Uh, no, she was not. She published in three volumes at a time. So these were three vo- three decker novels. There, um, the the early version of that, um, and so they were quite what does that expensive. Mean? What do you mean a three decker novel? Uh, meaning that um, uh, novels, and no one knows exactly why this phenomenon began. Was it libraries that could that liked books in parts, three large parts for a long novel, so that three lenders could borrow at the same time, um, or did 
the fact that novels were suddenly being published in three volumes at a time, um, even something that's a glorified short story um, uh, like um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was published in three volumes hmm. uh, with a lot of wide margins in the case of Frankenstein um, because that was the convention, that a novel, that genre was inhabiting three volumes at a time. I mean, there are some exceptions, people who are very long-winded, you know, Francis Burney, uh, Samuel Richardson, uh, they don't fit into three volumes. But um, uh, yeah, the three-volume novel became a phenomenon, and Austin was at the at sort of the forefront of that. But that also made novels very expensive items until cheap paper comes along uh, mid-century and cheaper versions. So just to speculate, I, you know, I think of Dickens. Dickens was serialized. So if you were yep. a Dickens reader, you read a chapter at a time in a magazine that later mm-hmm. got put into a book. Um, presumably some of the technological changes you talked about that made those railroad editions possible made magazines possible and affordable, mm-hmm. which led to the potential for serialization that didn't exist in Jane's time. But um, yes. that's just interesting. But the the point is, is that scholars looked at fancy leather-bound editions of books to look at how an author's reputation might rise and fall. What you've done for Jane Austen is tried to find as many of these less expensive editions, there's zillions of them. Yep. Uh, and what's interesting, of course, is that most of them should have been thrown away. Most of them were. They fell apart. They they were pulped for for a variety of reasons. But you found enough. Can you give us an idea of how many you dug up? Um, uh, this project's been going on, sort of slumbering in the background of other things for about 10 years. Um, and then I found uh, a few years in people who'd been collecting for decades, for four decades each. And so altogether, we found, yeah, hundreds of books that were not recorded, um, many of which are, are pictured in, uh, in, in the photographs in, um, in my book. With lots of changes in cover style and designs, really fun. Yeah. A lot of them are books that that are part of my youth, not Jane Austen's versions, but again, Kipling or other British authors who got reissued at various times. Um, so it's very nostalgic for me to, to read your book. The other thing you did, though, which I think is extremely interesting, is that you did as much digging as you could with a number of these editions because people put their names in them and you track them down. So tell us about some of that work and, and what you you discovered about the, her readership as a result. Um. Uh- it turns out that even cheap books for this new category of, of working class reader were valuable commodities and proud commodities. Um, uh, sort of that that sense of the emancipatory power of literature that um, Jonathan Rose talks about um, for the working classes. And so many, the, the cheaper the book almost that I, I discovered, the more likely it was to have a signature in it. And because now we have the, you know, the magic of the internet and Ancestry.com and all sorts of databases, the cost of of researching the provenance history, the ownership history of a particular book is now so low that, you know, a few minutes can tell you whether or not you can triangulate this name. Uh, is it unusual enough? You know, if it's a Jane Smith, uh, I'm very unlikely to find her. But if it's an unusual name and it has a location in it, uh, and then, of course, there's the date of the book. Um, and when it was published, if you can use those to triangulate um, then 
yeah, I, I found many of these people whose books were suddenly on my desk or in someone's private collection here that, and their stories made the research behind this book no longer academic, if you see what I mean. It made them those stories very personal. And uh, at the suggestion of the uh, editor at Johns Hopkins, I um, I began sort of develop, develop them as separate pieces, as pieces between the chapters uh, that deal with larger issues, so as to be able to kind of see um, a specific reader and how they had owned a copy and what had happened to them. Because we always talk about 19th century readers or 20th century readers in this ghostly, unnamed fashion. And suddenly, here were real readers with real names who had real lives. And some of them, some of those lives were pretty gritty. Tell us about one that you, that you particularly found interesting. Um, the one that I say for last in the book that I found the most sort of touching, as in like I sobbed, um, was a copy of Northanger Abbey that um, I found on you know, drifting around on eBay uh, for a few dollars um, that was signed and um, made out as an attendance prize. Many of these books were, as you, as you indicate, you recognize them. Um, the books were folded into juvenile uh, series for kids. So Austin was also kind of a kiddie read uh, during the late Victorian um, and early 20th century periods. And um I found a copy uh, that was really pretty, I thought, um, uh, of Northanger Abbey made out to a young woman named Annie Monroe um, as an attendance prize in a school in Scotland in 1911. Um, And the opposite page had been made over to uh, uh, another Monroe, uh, Florence Monroe, uh, and the full... um, uh, address for Market Street for Far Scotland of the home of Annie and Florence Monroe was given. So I was able to research these two girls and discover that they lived with four other siblings. There were six children and two parents and they lived in a small place. And um, and in the end, uh, I discovered, uh, you know, I thought it was so fun and children reading. I was wrong. I discovered that Annie, six months later after receiving her book prize, had died of diphtheria um, because the whole neighborhood had had a diphtheria outbreak and the Monroes lost two of their daughters. Um, And I was devastated that this book, this trophy that had been so important to her, she had made it out in this sort of shaky handwriting to her sister, maybe when she was ill, I don't know. Um that that was what was left of this reader, this actual reader's life. And that these books told stories, stories about real people. Even the book collector who was helping me, she said, you know, these are no longer books. They now all have names uh, because of the people who's, you know, who once owned them. Yeah, it's really, um, it's a bit of 19th century and early 20th century anthropology that you're, of course, doing there. Yeah. Um, and I think about my own books, which I have a, a huge emotional attachment to. I've referenced this recently that, you know, I assumed I'd pass them on to my children. I don't sure I'm not sure my children want them. I don't want my, my father's books, which uh it makes me sad. He has a few thousand that he assumed uh I would probably want or my siblings and uh, we want a couple maybe, but mm-hmm. um and those inscriptions 
uh, have a poignance about them now because uh, they'll end up, many of those books just end up, it's not really, I don't know if it's sad. Maybe it's something not sad, right? It's something really beautiful about it. They still get to be enjoyed. Uh, most of them, they they survive and someone else gets to read them. So maybe it's not sad at all. Um, maybe not. I mean, these books are not as fragile as uh, as they've been deemed to be, in spite of they're even the ones printed on bad paper. Yeah. Uh, they they continue to last and continue to give sort of testimonials. I think what's sadder is to to think how if you're reading a book on a Kindle, how are you going to pass that oh, yeah. to a- the next generation? Um, so that it's yeah, these these trophies do speak to people even you know outside of a family. Do you own a Kindle? I, uh, I I do not. Okay. Do you ever read a book on on your on an electronic device? I tell my students that um, there's seventy seven zero percent less retention if you read it on the screen, and I would like to remember the stuff that I read if I'm going to read it. So no, no. I'm, I'm pretty much of a luddite. I, I think like it's the paper products. I think it's seventy point four. Uh, that's a oh, joke. Really? That's a joke for my <laughs> listeners. Um, <clears throat> The point four makes it more convincing. It makes it sound more scientific. I I doubt it's seventy either, but it might be less. <laughs> it might there might be something less that's retained through a uh, electronic screen. So it's, I'll concede that. Um, is there a difference between her reputation, Jane Austen's reputation in America versus um, England at this time? Uh, you mean today? Yeah, today. Um, I mean I think that the English probably feel a sense of ownership. Uh, that uh, our accents uh, deny us over Jane Austen, um, but no, I I think that the the Jane the only way I can measure that is that the Jane Austen societies in England and in America are different in kind in the events they hold and the way they celebrate their author. Their affections are clearly equally strong, and their interpretations and their um, their use of Jane Austen um, is very similar, but their uh, behavior at conferences and, you know, the, the Americans, they tend to dress up and they... Um, dress up meaning... Dress up meaning dress. meaning dress up in Regency clothing and uh, enact balls and kind of um, and there are there is a uh, a yearly bath festival uh, in the city of Bath in in England um, that that has that element to it but on the on the whole conferences are um, in America tend to be a little bit more jubilant um, and yeah tend to celebrate the pop culture element of Austin uh, maybe more than uh, the Brits. Well, that's so uh, nice do. of us because that makes them feel superior to us, which they might, maybe they enjoy. Um, yes. y- you say in an essay, and you maybe say in the book as well, you say cheap books help make authors canonical. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking back to Chuck Klosterman's episode on Econ Talk, but what if we're wrong? He speculates in there as to who would be the great uh iconic rock and roll figure 100, 200 years from now. <laughs> uh, and his view, if I remember correctly, is that that question is going to usually be determined by some set of obscure academics writing scholarly work on something that wasn't scholarly at all. And so I want you to defend your claim about Jane Austen that that her cheap uh, books, that her editions for the masses – made her a canonical figure, part of the literary canon, uh, rather than the 
arcane, abstruse, opaque scholarly work of people in the academy? Um, okay, fair enough. Um, academics read editions and people read books. And I think that if Jane Austen had only existed, and it is a hypothetical and we all hate hypotheticals, um, if Jane Austen had only continued to exist in those first editions, which were printed in runs as small as 500 uh, for some of the novels and as large as 2,000 for Emma, um, that's not enough of a reach. She had to be reprinted. Um, and Bentley's reach for all of the academics that champion him um, is also not great enough. There's there's no way for me to prove this hypothetical, uh, but I believe that the, the books that we've erased from history, the editions in which ordinary people encountered her, um, are the ones that kind of built her reputation from the ground up. And that ca- canonicity is is not, I think, the rarefied thing that um, a Henry James-style elite might make it out to be. Um, Henry James famously, in around 1905, sneered at all the different proliferations of Jane Austen uh, in, in what I think he termed sort of every kind of tasteful uh, cover. In other words, he saw Jane Austen everywhere, and... Uh, lamented her being marketed in this kind of cheesy, schlocky way. And I think we owe her celebrity to that exactly that kind of schlock. Mark Twain was not a fan. No, he was not. Do we know why? I think that the green-eyed monster also uh, played a role in Mark Twain's approach to Austin, whom he said of a... I think it was a library on a ship that um, it had no Jane Austen in it, and that is what made it a great library. Um, he he started snarking only in the eighteen in the mid eighteen nineties when he has this mean thing that he says about every time I do read Jane Austen, I want to dig her up and hit her over the head with her own shin bone. Um, very very unpleasant thing to say, yeah. but. Um, why would you say it unless you're truly bothered as a fellow novelist by the proliferation of an author who is so celebrated and so touted um, with all these cheap editions everywhere? Um, even even he owned a couple of Jane Austen uh, cheap editions uh, and must have some, kind of seen that as a phenomenon and apparently resented it. By the green-eyed monster, you mean envy, I assume. Uh, I do indeed. Okay. Uh, I want to I push off your... Um out of your comfort zone a little bit. Um, I want to talk about Trollope and Dickens. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big Dickens fan. I've read a lot of his books. Uh, we don't see eye to eye on political economy, but he's an incredible storyteller. He's incredibly funny. And mm-hmm. I think a case could be made that Anthony Trollope is a better writer. So the one question would be, here's a sort of a controlled case where a proli- both prolific, uh, incredibly yeah amazing number of words <laughs> produced in their lifetimes. Um, I'm going to suggest that I'm, I'm going to try to be rational about it, which is probably wrong. But Trollope is, he wrote about somewhat obscure things, things related to the church and British politics. Um, you could argue then Dickens is more accessible. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I suspect there were reasons that Dickens just got lucky. And I suspect that the ease with which people have made modern versions of his work, and I, I remember the classic comic. I was probably seven years old of Oliver Twist or whatever it was that I read, that the movies that were made, that that is part of the story as well in terms of why Dickens is still world famous and Trollope is so obscure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you're you're searching for an answer in plot. And I suppose that in comparison, comparing them to Austin, I would look for an economic reason as well, um, which is that they are both, as you point out, very prolific uh, in their words. And um, they are not men of... Um, you know, uh, short novels. And these longer novels just don't reprint cheaply as, as, as well. And so Austin benefit, benefited from not only being present at every kind of uh, innovation in the history of the book, um, as uh, starting in the 1830s, she's, you know, reprinted on stereotype plates and reprinted in books that no longer need to be in leather and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but she's the right size. And uh, but I was actually asking a, a narrower question, which is out yeah. of your comfort zone, you Jane, I, you. Uh, is that the way you say <laughs> a, a Janeite? Is that the correct pronunciation? By the way, it somebody is. who's into it Jane is. Austen. Yeah, uh, I was asking you to speculate about why Trollope is forgotten and why Dickens is still doing okay. I, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think Dickens is just simply livelier, and his upholstered descriptions of everything yeah, um, animate uh, the page in a way that I'm afraid I'm not a Trollope fan. So <laughs> I, 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 uh, I don't, I don't share that conundrum. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Shakespeare. You were part of a. Um, putting together an exhibit here in Washington, D.C., where, where I am mm-hmm. right now, on, uh, I love the title, it was called Will and Jane. It was about Shakespeare and Jane Austen. Why were they paired? It was at the Folger Library, correct? Yes, Which it was is at the a, Folger Shakespeare a, Library. Yeah, so that's a Shakespeare place. Uh, how did Jane come to um, worm her way into that apple? <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. Sorry about um, that, it's just a cheap shot. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> but that is... It is a. It was a very unusual year as well. That happened in 2016. Uh, uh, Will Shakespeare was celebrating sort of the 400th uh, anniversary um, uh, of his death, as sort of the 400th year of his afterlife. And um, uh, I happened to be at a dinner uh, with the uh, head of uh, the Folger Shakespeare Library. I happened to be seated next to him. So this is the sort of, you know, what happens when academics chat. And I was bragging that Jane Austen was giving Will Shakespeare a run for his money and the Folger <laughs> better, you know, better do their best to try and, uh, um, uh, you know, lift their game a bit. And as we were sort of jousting uh, verbally uh, back and forth about Will and Jane, um, we we seized upon the idea of sort of like, what if we did a show together? Wouldn't that be a blockbuster? And... Um, that's how come Jane Austen was let into the building that is sort of the rarefied shrine uh, that is uh, the Folger Shakespeare Library, dedicated entirely to all things Shakespeare. Um, this was the first show in which Shakespeare had ever um, been double-billed with someone else, and Jane Austen um, 
got that honor, and uh, more people showed up for that particular exhibition at the Folger than any other exhibition they had ever had. And so I think two plus two make more than four when it comes to that kind of, of celebrity and that kind of synergy between two very different literary creatures who have both drifted to the top. What, did you, what was displayed at that exhibit? Um, right? You mean the aside stand- from the shirt? <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about the shirt. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so the shirt was the best rental ever. Um, it was um, the, the when I refer to the shirt with capital letters, I am referring, of course, to the chemise worn by Colin Firth when he dipped into the pond at Pemberley. That was in 1995, Pride and Prejudice for television, uh, written by uh, the brilliant Andrew Davis. And uh, that was a sensation in 1995, so much so that that's become this kind of strange focal point for the celebrity of Austin. <laughs> And so when we said, okay, well, we're putting Shakespeare's celebrity at his 200 mark, uh, which, you know, in the 18th century, uh, Shakespeare was suddenly propelled propelled into the canon um, by the entrepreneurial activities of an actor named David Garrick, who created what we now know as kind of Stratford, the Disneyland of Jane, of, of Shakespeare. Um and we said, well, how can we compare that to Jane Austen now at the 200 mark? So let's put them on equal footing. Shakespeare at 200, Jane Austen at 200. What does that look like? And these public spectacles, um, there had been a Shakespeare uh, gallery and there were these Stratford events and et cetera that had occurred in the 18th century mapped on to the celebrity of Austen today. And so we were putting... You ask what was in the exhibition. We were essentially putting materials that were at least 200 years old um, that had been part of the 18th century celebrations of Shakespeare that were in the Folgers collections and put them next to very modern materials. And that juxtaposition of kind of high and low and uh, museum materials and stuff we pulled from eBay, um, that irreverence is what I think animated the show and made it very loud in the gallery. People took shirties, as they called them, photographs uh, from standing behind uh, the shirt in the case, uh, photographing themselves. They um, they dressed up again. They They were... I think it was not the hushed museum experience that is the usual experience at the Folger uh, when you're visiting uh, a fol- you know, first folio uh, of Shakespeare. But it was a different kind of almost theatrical, celebratory um, kind of festival of, of things that, that involved both Will and Jane. I have a very amusing uh, satirical essay, which we'll post where you uh, claim, tongue-in-cheek, that obviously Jane Austen didn't write the books that are attributed to her. And part of that was riffing on Shakespeare's uh, reputation, which many people have argued, I think mainly just to get tenure, but um, many people have argued that, you know, or to sell books. Shakespeare didn't write the plays that are attributed to to him. And my joke is, no, they're written by someone else with the same name. But no, actually, the claim is they're actually written by someone else yet. Uh, with a different name, whether it was Christopher Marlowe or the um, Earl of Oxford. Earl of Oxford, or, yeah. yeah. So um, that created that's a lovely industry of of, um, of fun publication and 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 articles. But uh, I think the point underlying those articles and the point of your humorous piece, which I think is actually quite important, is that 
a lot of people have claimed, well, of course they couldn't have written those books. Of course, Shakespeare couldn't have written his plays because he didn't know enough about the court, or he didn't know enough about warfare, or he didn't know enough about the monarchy, or he didn't know enough about human beings, fill in the blank. And your point was that you can say the same thing about Jane Austen, and yet somehow she managed it, and we're pretty sure she wrote those. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it is a fun game. The litmus test of celebrity has to be sort of denial. Um, and it, in Austen's case, too, um, uh, the this idea that sometimes people revert to biography to um, to for everything to read a novel that is uh, a kind of proud achievement of the imagination and to deny an author their talents by saying oh this person writes about uh, you know you don't see that happening to Tolkien. Um, that somehow he, you know, it's it's being insisted upon that his biography match uh, his works. So too with Austen, just because she was never married doesn't mean she didn't write the greatest love stories um, ever written. And that kind of denial of the human imagination, um, I found uh, offensive and also at the same time, um, the food for a column. <laughs> Yeah, and it, well, to be honest, it's in a way it's a compliment, right? To, yeah. to presume that this could never have been written, obviously, is yeah, to because say, she's so great, she couldn't possibly have done it. Yeah, I, it's um, like you say, the human imagination is a beautiful thing. One of my followers on on Twitter, Josh uh, Dalton, asks, uh, "quote I'd love to hear her opinion on what Jane herself would think of the cinematic, televisual adaptations of her works." Austin Prize, the rational and satirical, yet adaptations are often gooily romantic. Would she thus be disappointed or appreciate the exposure and or money? Um, I agree that some of the adaptations are um, sort of uh, worthy of a dentist in how unbelievably toothachey sweet they are. Um, and I think that Austen's best work in all of her novels, uh, in spite of be often being quoted out of context in this kind of sincere way, she is a satirist and she is a humorist and she she's funny, damn it. And that is what makes her works uh, appealing and lively. And some of these gooey, as um, uh, your listener uh, says, um, kind of, adaptations uh, seem more reductive. And so, um, yeah, as with the column you, you were quoting earlier about, you know, Jane Austen is a fraud, um, uh, that was published on uh, the anniversary, um, the 200th anniversary um, uh, of her death. And I thought that that was a better homage to make fun um, than um, to say how great she was, precisely because I too think that the gooey isn't always uh, get at the point. But what would she have thought of them? Obviously, um, she couldn't imagine I mean, she them. Couldn't, it's rather she extraordinary. She couldn't imagine them, but at the same time, 
I mean, of course she was th- would have been thrilled to be the center of so great a universe. I mean, she had little account books in which she took note of how much money she earned uh, with every book. She had little lists of what other people said about her works. Um, Mansfield Park includes a list where she even writes down what her mother thought, sort of like mother thought uh, Fanny insipid but liked Mrs. Norris. Um, she wrote down every little bit. I think she would have been on Instagram and Facebook, you know, sort of checking her likes on a daily basis in order to kind of assess how she was doing and how her stock was rising and falling. You're so cruel. <laughs> no, good for her. I said, good for her. You go, girl. Um, yeah. I, one of the interesting things I've been thinking about lately in terms of data and knowledge is this question of how we understand the world and where we get our knowledge from. And I complain that too many times I think people assume that the only things that count as knowledge are those things that can be quantified. And one of the topics that came up in recently was whether one should have children. You could also ask whether you should get married. And many of the people I was arguing with said, well, we could do a poll, we could do a survey, we could find out something about whether people who did get married or did have children, whether they're happy relative to those who aren't. And I thought that was a little bit, um, I suggested that would be unproductive. Not to go into that now, but one of the things I suggested as an alternative would be to read a book, a novel. That is another way that we come to understand the world around us for making decisions like that. We don't, in fact, I could argue that fiction is a much better way to understand whether marriage or children or other decisions we make in life will make us happy and how we ought to think about them. What do you think of that? Um, I think you're preaching to the converted. Yeah, um, you, you know, I'm a, I'm a literature professor and I teach books because I think that they matter. And I teach specifically the, the history of the novel starting in the 18th century um, because I think that that particular genre, that, that literary creature that is the novel, um, gives us stories that map onto our lives in ways that, um, that have that kind of legacy and that have those kinds of dividends that you're talking about uh, of, uh, of knowledge and the human condition. So, um, yeah, I'm afraid I've already drunk that Kool-Aid. So I cried at the end of Sense and Sensibility. Good for you. Um, the first time I saw it, probably the second time I saw it too. Um, you, oh, you saw it, meaning not yeah, when you read it. No, I don't remember reading it. I, th- I have read it. I'm pretty confident I've read it, but in the movie version, I cried. Okay, and then you were referring to Emma Thompson's Correct. brilliant screenplay. Okay. Correct. But that did she write the screenplay? Yeah, she wrote the screenplay wow. and starred in the film. Yeah. And it, but it's directed, I think, I want to say by is it Ang Lee directed it. Is that right? Not yeah, sure. that is correct. Okay. Emily directed it. So those are fictional people, uh, made-up folks, not real, mm-hmm. uh, out of the imagination, the gray matter of uh, a woman who died in 1817, mm-hmm. and yet 200 years later, I'm sobbing. Uh, that happened to be, well, I won't say how I was sobbing, but I was moved deeply by it. They're fictional people, though. You sobbed, you said, when you read about poor Annie Monroe, died of diphtheria six months after winning an attendance prize. Mm -hmm. Why does fiction do that to us? Is that not weird? Does that ever strike you as weird? Why do I cry over people who are not alive? Why do I not say, well, there's nothing to be sad about here or happy? These are just, they're just figments. 
But that is, they are portals to empathy. I think it is a good sign of your humanity, Ross, that you cried um, uh, in in watching the, you know, it's a brilliant film and Ang Lee and Emma Thompson did a fantastic job. Uh, and the ending of that film is not the same uh, exactly as the ending of the book. But I think that you're, you're describing um, our ability as human beings to empathize and um, and the fact that we don't have to live every experience ourselves, um, and, you know, God forbid that we should have to experience war and hunger in order to empathize with those uh, who, uh, who are in the midst of that. And literature helps us to do that. So let's dip into that Kool-Aid a little bit more, the humanities Kool-Aid. It's, it's um, STEM is on the rise. Humanities majors are down. Historically, professorships are down. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to be a staunch defender of, of the humanities. I have I have a son who's majoring in philosophy. And, and when people say, you know, well, what's that good for? I always say, well, thinking. And thinking is, you know, useful. <laughs> but yeah. but I want let's hear your defense. Um, why take a class in, in Jane Austen? Is it just for the entertainment value of, of learning about I mean, it doesn't have to be productive. It doesn't have to raise your salary. Uh, there are a lot of reasons that are good reasons for doing things that aren't uh, related to income. But what would you what would you say in defense of of, of English literature and studying it at the university level? I mean, I think you're on the right track. That um, in the in the world of of kind of a STEM propelled utility function education, um, we're losing sight of the thinking uh, that always has to happen. And I think that um, the students who, um, and I don't just preach to um, English majors in my classes. In fact, the classes that I love to teach are the ones that have engineers in them and nursing students and uh, people who want to do other things with their lives other than be teachers um, uh, or go to graduate school. The, the way to think about an, a college education in America is to think about how different it is from the rest of the world. We have four years uh, in which not just to develop a skill set that will lead to that utility function in that profession, but you have four whole years, nowhere else in the world do you have four years in which to experience um, other worthy subjects. And I think that even if you don't become an English major, um, taking a class in Jane Austen teaches you to historicize, to be a human being, to uh, think, uh, to understand the importance of language and its precision. Uh, I could go on all day about the things that you can learn from one Jane Austen novel, let alone six. Um, as I ask my students you know, to rehearse on an almost daily basis, I tell them we're not reading for plot. And then I said, no, no, I'm really serious. You repeat after me. And with feeling, we are not reading for plot. And then the question was, well, yeah, what, are we what are we reading for? And we're reading in order to transport ourselves to another time, uh, perhaps so that we don't repeat all the lessons learned uh, from life in 1813, um, but can learn um, from from these works. So I see them as kind of portals into history, um, as well as uh, extraordinary examples of, of kind of human literary achievement that in a very efficient way 
can um, teach us about uh, humanity and can make doctors uh, better doctors by having read uh, a work like Persuasion uh, and all its references to nursing uh, that happen in that particular text or aging. Um, literature helps us to be better at whatever it is that we do, I think. Um, it's not, it's sort of the, the, you know, the grease on many, many wheels. It's not uh, something that needs to be necessarily studied um, for itself alone, uh, but in combination with many other things. Another question from a, a Twitter follower of mine, Laura Miller, she asks, uh, she'd mm-hmm. be really interested in the financial aspects of marriage in the late 18th century, which points out a, another aspect of reading fiction. Or older fiction in particular, that it tells us something about how life was lived in a way that, uh, you know, Wikipedia entry does not. Uh, yeah. Do we know anything about the accuracy of, of Jane Austen's, um, the her character's concerns and anxiety and, and dreams uh, as to whether they captured a small part of the population of her day, a large part? What do we know about that? Um, we know that you can put an extraordinary amount of interpretive pressure on all the details in her stories mm. and begin to realize that uh, she did her research so that uh, when uh, she references, you know, Mr. Bingley coming into town with four or five thousand a year, it's because the kind of Navy bonds, uh, the government bonds were at the time giving four or five percent. Um, and that means that she calculated that he had uh, inherited from his father, Mr. Bingley Sr., um, £100,000 and was therefore living off of that interest. This is a new kind of money. This is someone who um, is uh, not landed wealth, but new wealth, you know, moneyed wealth. And um, all of those little details about heiresses who have so many thousands of pounds and um, about um, uh, how um, the distances between traveled by characters between certain places, that is the kind of precision that you and I expect from a James Joyce, you know, where people with stopwatches are kind of measuring the flow of the Liffey through, through Dublin um, between the chapters. And uh, she is just like that. So I think that when it comes to the reliability of her stories, uh, they, um, they can be relied upon for, by someone who, you know, who, who's, who was really there and who did uh, her homework. And the fact that all the economic details, the prices of things and the, um, those numbers all add up in her stories means that, yeah, she, she was someone tracking the economic uh, reality of her day and but the what economic about, reality of those women in those what, stories. What about the social reality, the the um, insecurity and um, fears often uh, of her mm-hmm. characters? I guess you could argue that there's there's a gothic horror aspect of, of her stories. I never thought about sure. it that way. Sure. Um, do we have a reason to think that was common, mainstream, everybody, or was it just a particular niche? 
Um, I think that in terms of Austin kind of living on the edge of gentility herself as the daughter of a clergyman and uh, the sister of brothers who were in the Navy and did very well there and brothers who uh, were part of the landed gentry, um, that, yeah, we're talking about, what, 10% of the population max in terms of that uh that sort of uh, who who would have four or five thousand a year and be in that class of people, um, but in terms of her stories, I don't know if this answers your question. But one of the questions I invariably get uh, after the first lecture, the, whatever the substance is, a lecture on you know literary illusion or uh, uh, about economics or some detail where, as a professor, you you zoom in to a text to a particular page and you kind of unpack a paragraph or unpack a particular scene, invariably at the end of that first lecture, um, a student will raise their hand and, and will say, um, okay, I understand what you said, but in Austin's time, would people have noticed this? And in other words, I always get called out by my students as sort of like, is this about you, Professor Barkas? And you know, sort of the the smarts we apply now, or is this about those particular people and the suspicion that we as readers are smarter readers than Austin's original readers? I mean, that's the kind of hubris that the Greeks that the Greeks write about, and it's the kind of hubris my students tend to inhabit. They think that people in you know 1811 couldn't possibly have tracked that literary illusion because they weren't in college uh, now or something, or they didn't have Twitter or Google at their disposal, whereas the opposite is, of course, true. These books would have, because they were a relatively new genre still, and Austin is doing something daring and new with her particular stories, that that close-knit Zoom that is really about uh, much larger issues than at first glance it seems, that readers would have paid unbelievably close attention to those four or five thousand pounds, those four or five thousand, you know, a year, um, and would have done the calculations and would have been kind of smirking along with her stories. And that that historical distance gives us a false sense of hubris when, in fact, it should enhance our humility before the text. One one thing I've noticed is that in many pop culture stories about the past, and they obviously tend to take a cardboard approach where Women, for example, are, are oppressed by men 24-7. They have, they have no authority, no autonomy. And, of course, to some extent, Jane Austen's books are a tribute to the way women used the limited power that they had. But they had some power, obviously, in, in her day. Do your students find that sometimes difficult, that, it, that they have a particular perception of the battle of the sexes uh, from today's looking back that might we have to change when they read Jane Austen. Yeah, I think that, that of course, students um, and all of us tend to be anachronistic when we're looking at a work 200 years ago and that, that time travel element, that kind of reading something in historical context and understanding what the language meant at the time um, and kind of modifying our own uh, cartoonish, as, as as you point out, expectations or um, sense of the past. Um, that yeah, that that is what a a work of literature. I mean, this is what Shakespeare does. Um, it's also what Austen does, and even Dickens at times can uh, can kind of modify our sense of. I don't know. It's almost historical superiority, isn't it? Yeah, this sense sure. that 
um, yeah, that we know best. And so uh, we, we judge in a way that uh, has kind of no historically responsible context. So I'm going to share something with listeners I've, I'm very confident I've never shared before. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had a great uncle, Henry C. Roberts. He had a little bit of fame in his lifetime. He wrote a book called The Prophecies of Nostradamus. <laughs> I never met Henry. I'm sad to say I tried to meet him once with my family. We were in Philadelphia where he owned a bookstore, uh, but, but it was closed and we didn't see him. Uh, Long-distance calls were expensive then. We didn't call ahead, and that was just the way it was then. But Henry had a heyday, my father tells me, where he uh, appeared on talk shows in maybe the late 50s, early 60s, uh, claiming to be a reincarnation of Nostradamus. (laughs) And uh, there was a period, allegedly, where he only spoke in Old French, which um, must have been difficult for his friends and family. Uh, but I, I thought about Henry because your name is Janine, which sounds a lot like Jane, and somehow you live in Austin, Texas. Does slightly different spelling, but that could just be to throw us off. Uh, does that? Um, do you ever think about that? Um, I have, to and I have to say that's the most foolish yeah. question I've ever asked a guest, but I couldn't resist. It, it really is, and it shows <laughs> that deep deep in your soul you are a punster at heart, and I'm not sure what to make of that. Um, but um, you know, other than the fact that uh, uh, my publisher on the first book spelled uh, the author as uh, Jane Barkus, um, I have, <laughs> and the fact that I have T-shirts. Uh, that say Austin in Austin for my large, uh, uh, you know, lecture classes, um, and that I currently made use of that pun in an exhibition at the Harry Ransom Center of uh, their Jane Austen holdings. Um, that's called Austin in Austin. That's uh, on show until the fifth of January here, uh, with a lot of sort of gobsmacking things. It, one makes use of the pun, Ross, uh, <laughs> Ross, but it, one does not necessarily, you know, believe in it in a sort of faith sense. So that's okay. my okay. You're not. <laughs> You're not like, okay, good. I'm somewhat I'm relieved. not channeling Jane Austen, okay, for God's good. sake. Okay. No. Um, if you're a listener to this episode, you've never read Jane Austen, which I suspect there were a few in that mm-hmm. in my audience. Where where should they start? What what is your if is there a um any advice you might give as to order or I think first that- one if you're only gonna read one? If you're only going to read one or if you're just going to start and see how it goes, I would suggest absolutely Pride and Prejudice. Um, it will give you the greatest social currency out there if you've read that particular story. Um, and uh, it's also the one that starts with dialogue. It's, it's almost – it's her second one and published in 1813. And it's almost as if she's worked out all the kinks and uh, – the, the opening of that is is so wonderful that um, in a large lecture class, I usually um, act it out with uh, with students um, because it's such an easy way in. My guest today has been Janine, Janine Barkas. Her book is The Lost Books of Jane Austen. Janine, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast 
and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.